knowledge. In Colossians 3, 5-9, St. Paul cites the evil works of man's fallen nature, which have now been put away by the believers, who have put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him. Colossians 3.10 Barry stated that the man is here properly the youthful man, which is renewed, that is, to which is given a nature really fresh and new. The old man and his works have been abolished. The new man, created by God in Christ, is constantly renewed in his original newness to fulfill his original task. As Lenski so ably analyzed it, St. Paul brings forward a very interesting aspect of man's renewal. But now, instead of saying renewed for good works, as in Ephesians 2.10, and thus stating a direct opposite of the evil practices of the old man, Paul goes deeper and says, constantly renewed for epignosis in accord with his creator. For out of this true spiritual knowledge arise all true spiritual good works. It accords with the image of God. Ephesians 4.24 informs us that the image consists in knowledge and holiness which belong to truth. With it goes this knowledge as being in accord with the image of God. Adam was created in God's image. In Adam, this image existed in its pristine newness and made him like God in righteousness and holiness. And it was combined with true knowledge and thus with truth as held by this knowledge. In these respects, Adam was a miniature copy of God. This image, which was lost in consequence of the fall, God recreates by grace and constantly renews unto the spiritual knowledge which keeps the image clean and unspoiled in us. This is in essence what the larger catechism said in its summary description of man's nature. God made them after his own image, in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness, having the law of God written in their hearts and power to fulfill it, and dominion over the creatures yet subject to fall. Answer 17. The word epignosis is particularly of interest. According to Edward Robinson's lexicon, 1850, it means full knowledge. According to Joseph Henry Thayer's lexicon, 1886, it means precise and full knowledge. According to Vine, it suggests generally a directive, a more special recognition of the object known. Sometimes epignosco implies a special participation in the object known and gives greater weight to what is stated. Thus, in John 832, Ye shall know the truth, Epignosco lays stress on participation in the truth. J. Armitage Robinson, on Ephesians, points out that epignosis is knowledge directed towards a particular object, perceiving, discerning, whereas gnosis is knowledge in the abstract. The unbeliever seeks gnosis, not epignosis. He seeks knowledge in the abstract, not knowledge in relationship to the object known. Abstract knowledge is the attempt to interpret all things without reference to God. God is abstracted from reality and things are interpreted not in terms of God, but in terms of themselves. But what remains of a thing when God is abstracted from reality? The thing, whether it be a man or a plant or animal, is a creature, separate and distinct from God. Its being is created being, whereas God is uncreated being. However, God having made all things, nothing exists in and of itself. Thus, to attempt an abstraction is to attempt the impossible. Nothing has any residue of being or meaning which can be abstracted from God and his creative purpose. Every atom of every particular thing is a creation of God, and it is only truly knowable in terms of him. To attempt the interpretation of anything without God is to attempt the impossible. The unbeliever, seeking knowledge or gnosis, if he is faithful to his premises, can know nothing, because he has denied any purpose, order, or meaning in the universe by denying God. 
The knowledge such a man garners about reality is based on assuming the validity of God's creative decree without accepting God. No one has stated the issues with respect to knowledge more ably and tellingly than Dr. Cornelius Van Til. According to Van Til, The first question we must ask with respect to the relation of our knowledge of God to our knowledge of the universe is, which of these two is prior? Man cannot help but know himself at once in relation to his environment. The subject of knowledge must know itself in relation to and in contrast with the object of knowledge. This contention that man must know himself in relation to his environment is not merely a general consideration obtained by observation of experience. It is implied in the very bedrock of Christian theism. This may be seen by again referring to our idea of God and of God's relation to the created universe. Man exists by virtue of God's existence. Man's environment precedes man. God is man's ultimate environment, and this environment is completely interpretative of man who is to know himself. In other words, man's environment is not impersonal. It is, moreover, not merely personal in the sense that simultaneous with his own appearance, there are also other finite persons in relation to which he knows himself to be a person. Back of this relationship of finite persons to other finite persons and to other finite but impersonal things is the absolute personality of God. Back of the question as to whether man needs other finite persons or needs a finite, non-personal environment is the question of the environment of man's immediate environment. God is man's ultimate environment, and this ultimate environment controls the whole of man's immediate environment, as well as man himself. The whole of man's own immediate environment, as well as man himself, is already interpreted by God. Even the denotation of the whole universe exists by virtue of the connotation or plan of God. Thus, we have answered our question about temporal priority by answering the question of logical priority. Because man's knowledge of God is logically more fundamental than man's knowledge of the universe, we may be indifferent to the question of temporal priority. Even if, in our psychological experience, we know ourselves and the universe about us before we speak self-consciously of God, we have all the while known God if we have truly known anything else. We have constantly emphasized the concept of God as being basic to everything else which a Christian believes. This is so because God exists, as he exists, necessarily. For that reason, we cannot know ourselves in any true sense unless we know God. He is our most ultimate and therefore absolutely indispensable environment. For that reason, if we know him, we know him truly, though not comprehensively. It follows from all this that we know the world truly, too, though not comprehensively. To attempt to gain knowledge without God is for man the attempt to supplant God with the autonomous mind of man as the sole interpreter of reality. The knowledge required of man is, according to St. Paul, knowledge after the image of him that created him, Colossians 3.10. The Berkeley version renders this verse, put on the new self that is being renewed to have knowledge in the likeness of him who created it. This knowledge is not abstract. This means not only that God is not abstracted from reality, but it also means that this knowledge is not withdrawn or abstracted from the context of life. It is wisdom, and it is an aspect of the context of life. We are told that Adam knew Eve his wife, Genesis 4.1. To know in this sense means more than sexual relations. The term is only used in reference to marital relations. In cases of adultery and fornication, the expression is he lay with her, 2 Samuel 13.14. According to Leopold, in his comment on Genesis 4.1, the meaning of new, in Adam knew Eve his wife, 
signifies, as usual, a deeper knowing, an understanding of the divine purpose, in this instance the purpose which lay behind the form of woman. Knowledge in every area has this goal and context, an understanding of the divine purpose. It is closely related to what in Proverbs is called wisdom. Kidner has called attention to the five aspects of wisdom in Proverbs. First, it is instruction or training. This emphasizes the hard-won nature of wisdom. Its frequent companion is correction or reproof, a noun whose derivation emphasizes verbal rather than physical persuasion, an appeal to reason and conscience. Discipline is an aspect of this meaning. Second, another synonym for wisdom in Proverbs is understanding or insight, also sense. A third is wise dealing, i.e. good sense, practical wisdom, savoir-faire. Its particular character shows in its verb form, which often means be successful. It has a companion term, found wisdom. The supreme expression of wise dealing is in the unworldly triumph of the servant of the Lord, Isaiah 52.13. Fourth, wisdom is shrewdness and discretion, the power of forming plans. It means also counsels. Fifth, wisdom is also referred to in words translated as knowledge and learning. The former implying not so much an informed mind as a knowing of truth and indeed of God himself, Proverbs 2.5 and 3.6. And the latter tending to emphasize that doctrine is something given and received or grasped. There is no hint of an ivory tower conception of learning or of knowledge in the biblical doctrine. The rabbinic conception, while at many points departing from Scripture, did retain the intense practicality of knowledge which Scripture stresses. The modern university is a Christian institution in its original affirmation of the unity of knowledge in God, but, both in its development of a multiverse faith and its abstractness, it had denied its heritage and is thus in crisis. In knowledge, moreover, the priority of God is emphatically declared by Scripture. For the Lord giveth wisdom, out of his mouth cometh knowledge and understanding. Proverbs 2.6 Revelation is thus the ground of true knowledge. The presuppositions of man's rationality and thinking must be the triune God and his infallible word. The warning is, Every word of God is pure. Add thou not unto his words. Proverbs 30.5 and 6 All this is rejected by fallen man who assumes that he deals with a neutral world in which the facts he weighs and measures are neither created nor controlled by God. He denies that every fact is not only created by God, but also revelational of him. He assumes, after Kant, first, that there is the abstract possibility of any sort of fact existing. Facts in this sense have no determinable nature. They belong in Kant's noumenal realm. They are unknown and unknowable. This denies the doctrine of creation and providence. Second, the human facts that are known, that is, those that somehow come into contact with the human mind, are known by virtue of the original ordering effect of the human mind upon the raw stuff of experience. These are the facts of science. They are taken as much as given. What they are depends not upon the ultimate determinative character of God, but upon the ultimate determinative character of man, who virtually takes the place of God. Every fact, then, that has scientific standing is such only if it does not reveal God, but does reveal man as ultimate. If consistent to this premise, man will deny all knowledge. Man, however, is not consistent. Thus, third, the natural man is not consistent with his principles. There is operative within him the sense of deity. He cannot efface it without effacing himself.
Thus, while affirming chance rather than God, he cannot be logical in applying this premise. If the universe were actually what these men assume it to be according to their principle, there would be no science. Science is possible and actual only because the non-believer's principle is not true, and the believer's principle is true. Only because God has created the universe and does control it by his providence is there such a thing as science at all. To affirm chance is to deny the possibility of coherence or meaning. It is a rejection of the possibility of meaning. Thus, with Augustine, it must be maintained that God's revelation is the sun from which all other light derives. The best, the only, the absolutely certain proof of the truth of Christianity is that unless its truth be presupposed, there is no proof of anything. Christianity is proved as being the very foundation of the idea of proof itself. Because man is created in the image of God, it is suicidal for man to try to escape from the knowledge of God. Man is drawn to knowledge as a plant towards the sun. If the plant turns from the sun, it is wilting and will die. Thus, an aspect of man's revolt against maturity and against life is his revolt against knowledge. Whereas the natural man may seek knowledge as a substitute for God and as a means of becoming God, Genesis 3.5, he soon turns from knowledge itself because it is inescapably revelational of God. The purpose of Adam and Eve was to find in knowledge a means of becoming gods. Knowledge would supposedly place them beyond the jurisdiction of God's law and government because it would enable them to live beyond good and evil. They themselves would know or determine what constitutes good and evil. The knowledge they sought apart from God resulted not in knowledge, but in guilt, and guilt led to a flight from self-knowledge. When men forsake God, they soon forsake knowledge, and there follows a guilty flight into suicidal opiates in order to escape self-knowledge. It is precisely among students and intellectuals that opiates are today most popular. The older generation finds its opiates in work and entertainment. The younger generation needs a more potent dosage. The restoration of knowledge and learning means, therefore, that we must put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him, Colossians 3.10. On no other basis can there be a renaissance of knowledge. Man's gnosis leads to guilt and suicide, but godly knowledge or wisdom is a tree of life to them that lay hold upon her, Proverbs 3.18. The attempt by Adam and Eve to have gnosis, knowledge abstracted from God, led to a flight from epignosis true knowledge. Gnosis involves a self-blinding and an inability to relate fact to fact in their true sense, and in an abstract, brute factuality is posited. Because the believer has epignosis, knowledge which is an understanding of the divine purpose, St. John could declare, Ye have an unction from the Holy Spirit, and ye know all things. 1 John 2.20 The verb for know is oida, from the same root as idon, to see, and means to have seen or perceived. Not all things are known in factual detail by the believer, but he has the principle and the sight by which all things are seen or perceived. His ability to see or know is there. For those who attempt to know on the tempter's terms, Genesis 3.5, there is only blindness.